Hi, and welcome to the Wires Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Falk. I am the deputy editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and my guest today, an unusual guest, the reporter Gabriel Sherman. Gabe, of course, wrote the definitive book on Fox News and Roger Ailes, The Loudest Voice in the Room. Often on this podcast, we talk to filmmakers about adapting other works into cinema and television. Today, we're kind of doing a little bit of a twist on that. Uh, Gabe took an active producing and writing role on the Showtime Limited series, The Loudest Voice, which was an adaptation of his book with Russell Crowe starring as Roger Ailes. Also, uh, Roger Ailes is kind of, in a lot of ways, the ultimate evil auteur, someone who used uh, the tools that we talk about on this podcast uh, to create a very paranoid vision of America and a propaganda machine which is still having just a tremendous impact on, on our lives today. And today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. The drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning. It's told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. It's starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Google Matara, Billy Crudup, and a very funny Mark Duplass. It's four-year Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including outstanding drama series. And I, I know they just listed off this wonderful cast, but you know that wonderful cast was put together by uh, casting director Victoria Thomas, and I'd be remiss on the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast if I didn't mention, uh, you know, there's a lot of our favorite artisans working on this show. Carter Burwell is one of the best composers going. It's a Filmmaker Toolkit podcast, so I thought I'd editorialize. Anyways, uh, it's visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Loudest voice in the room, uh, how the brilliant, bombastic Roger Ailes built uh, Fox News and divided the country came out in 2014. Before we did divi- uh, jump into the Showtime yeah. series, you know, one of the things that one of the things that I found fascinating is, you know, you didn't just this isn't a story Fox News and Roger Ailes. This wasn't just a story that you kind of reported around the edges. You, you found a way to kind of get inside the room and what was discussed. I have to assume this is something that took years and years of reporting yeah. to get to get to that point. Cause we're talking about with Roger Ailes, a man who used his considerable power to keep people out. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, you really, uh, you really touched on it with that question because, you know, reporting on Fox news was in many ways uh, like reporting on a cult with the layers of secrecy and paranoia um, that, were very difficult to peel back. And so it required me um, to spend years uh, interviewing more than 600 people um, to really develop that full picture of, of the culture that Roger Ailes built inside the network and to reveal the, the effect that Fox News had on America. Um, so I started working on the book uh, in uh, 2010, uh, and it grew out of a series of articles I had written for New York Magazine, uh, where I was a staff writer at the time. Um, and the uh, book came out in uh, 2014, so it was really a three-plus-year uh, project um, that I was, you know, working on right up until the end, until uh, it was sent to the printer. Mm-hmm. And I want to, and we'll, we'll eventually get to what happened after 2014, which is very much built into to Loudest Voice, the series. But you know, one of the reasons I want to have you on this is you might seem like an unusual guest for this podcast, where we talk very often about with filmmakers about craft sure. and process. Uh, and one of the things that I'm fascinated about here is someone like yourself, because um, so often we we write about and and talk about. Um, nonfiction mm-hmm. works being adapted and it's very interesting to me you this is obviously something where you spent so much time figuring out what that story is inside 
you know, that process of, of adapting it is, is fascinating. And I have to imagine it's also one that you were a little wary of, uh, in terms of, you know, of what that's going to mean and what that's going to look like, right? Yeah, you know, well, yes and no. Um, I had always seen Ailes as a cinematic character uh, from, you know, really the beginning of, of, the, uh, of the book. You know, he was this sort of real-life Citizen Kane. Uh, you know, if you had pitched him uh, to a studio executive, they would have, you know, said maybe it's a little too on the nose of this right-wing paranoid media mogul who has a mansion on the top of a mountain with a bunker underneath and a, you know, a tunnel leading out to the, uh, to the road. Um, but this was what made Ailes such an incredible character was that it was actually true. It wasn't dreamed up, um, uh, out of a screenwriter's head. And so for me, um, I'd always seen the possibility of, of adapting it, um, to the screen. I think the, the most important thing for me was to remain true to the journalistic integrity of the book while at the same time, you know, producing a piece of entertainment that, um, you know, was able to stand on its own right. And so I think that tension that you, that you highlight is, is true. Um, and it was especially early on in the writer's room, um, when we were, um, you know, at the beginning of trying to craft what the story could be, I would push back aggressively on, you know, some of the other writers, uh, when they were starting to, you know, pitch ideas that would be fictionalizing or creating composite characters or dramatizing, I would, you know, really challenge those those ideas. So that I think the end result was that when we did make dramatic choices, they were the product of a lot of debate and discussion, and that there was always an artistic uh, reason that you could defend the dramatic choice. Um, and so most, I would say, almost. All of the series, uh, I felt the you know stayed true to the book that I had written. I'm assuming the main people here are Tom McCarthy, who our uh, listeners know from Spotlight, and then Alex Met um, uh, Alex Metcalf, um, who's a, a longtime TV vet. Was it even before the writers' room that you were involved? Is was there like kind of a deciding of how to break oh, the yeah, story yeah. with with Alex and Tom beforehand? Because I mean that's part of this too. Is is like you know, what are seven yeah. episodes, which parts of the story, even before you got in yeah. the writer's room? I mean, actually, this this project had a, a very long uh, gestation, as most things in Hollywood do. Um, and in fact, before I had written a, a word uh, of the book, um, HBO had optioned uh, the rights um, to do it as a feature film. Um, and they hired um, the screenwriter Noah Oppenheim, who had just come off of um, making that film Jackie. Uh, and... Um, NBC. Now he's yes. Now he's in. You know, he's in the news business. He was in the news business. Then he went to Hollywood. Now he's back in the news business. Um, And uh, and so you know that project um, got going, and then in very short order it died. Um, HBO decided you know the the political conflict of you know being part of the parent company that owns CNN and competing with Fox News. It just got messy. So they um, they decided to pull the plug. Um, and so then after two years, the rights reverted back to me. And, you know, in that time I had been, um, you know, hoping and thinking that this, this project could find another home. Um, and so my wife and I, uh, who we collaborate on a lot of projects started writing, uh, a feature film of our own, um, but a fictionalized one because we realized, you know, HBO had run into headwinds trying to do it as, you know, based on real characters. And so we were writing, uh, a, a, a film about a fictional right-wing media mogul 
and um, got about 50 pages in. And then, you know, I got consumed covering the 2016 presidential campaign for New York Magazine. And so put it in the desk drawer. Fast forward to the summer of 2016. And, you know, Roger Ailes is fired uh, amidst a wave of sexual harassment allegations. I was breaking a lot of those stories for New York Magazine. And, you know, it rekindled my interest in maybe there is another um, chance to do a, a dramatic adaptation here. So I sent those initial screenwriting uh, screen pages to a friend at Blumhouse, Telev- uh, Blumhouse who worked with Jason Blum. And uh, in very short order, uh, Marcy Weissman and Jeremy Gold, um, the heads of Blumhouse Television, you know, were calling saying they wanted to, you know, you know, option the book, buy the pages and develop it as a real um, as a real story, um, as a limited series for television. And so, you know, from that moment, uh, you know, we were involved from the beginning and, you know, even before Tom, um, McCarthy signed on, you know, we had been, you know, thinking about how we would break the series. And, uh, it, it was, um, it was this long process, but I got to, you know, it was my kind of baptism in Hollywood where I got to see how something goes from the sort of initial idea to the actual finished uh, show on the air. You know, that summer of 2016 uh, into the end of 2016, in, in a way, gave the Roger Ailes story, a, a re- in terms of a, a dramatic arc, gave it a real third sure. act, if you will. You know, both both in the form of the scandal that broke out with and him being fired because of all the sexual harassment charges, but then also mm-hmm. Trump. And so is that is that I could imagine also in terms of a series, one can now see yeah. a, a, a kind of a an end that's really going to kind of deliver on this story that. you. Yeah. Had and I think told. I would add one more point to that. I mean, the ultimate dramatic arc was his death um, several months after being fired from Fox News. You know, a broken man who was in exile in Palm Beach, Florida and drops dead on the floor of his bathroom. So, um, yeah, I think the those those things you mentioned really were um, things that we could drive the series toward and gave the story stakes. And I think the main question that we were asking early on when we were breaking story was, you know, this book was 400 some odd pages. You know, what what aspects of the story do we do we tackle? Do we want to capture Ailes' early years in the television business and, you know, entertainment? Do we want to show his, you know, abusive, troubled childhood in Ohio? Do we want to show him working for Richard Nixon um, in, in 68? You know, these questions of, you know, how much of the story to, to take, um, I think, you know, it could have gone in a lot of different direction. I think pretty quickly we decided that we did not want to do the kind of biopic convention where you show the quote unquote, you know, pivotal dramatic moments in a character's life that explain the man. Um, You know, it can be done very well, but it's been done so many times. Um, I think what we wanted to do was to tell a linear story of Ailes's rise and fall at Fox News, because those 20 years from when he created Fox to when he was fired, you know, tell you everything you need to know about who this man was. And we could bring in you know, stories that he told about those earlier experiences, uh, but do it in real time where we're not taken out of the story. Um, and so um, I think that was the right the right choice. Um, and I think Russell's performance, um, you know, he disappeared into the into the character. So, um, yeah, that was I think that was that was the biggest, you know, craft question that we had is, you know, do you want to take the whole life or do you want to take just a sliver of the life? I want to come back to to the casting, but, you know, you had mentioned Citizen Kane, you know, it's interesting. I, I, it seems like one of, in terms of 
taking it and telling that story, it seems like almost to a certain degree, your rosebud is that trip back Mm -hmm. to Ohio in in that sense that, um, you know, there is the politics, there is a conservative politics, but on an emotional basis, it seems as if a lot of it is in telling his arc is that idea of his hometown having changed and the way that that kind of ties into the Trump movement and also the kind of emotional storytelling that yeah. he does in on Fox News to a certain I mean it's hard to reduce a man's life to to certain things but I mean it seems as if that Ohio aspect um allows you to tie in so much in terms of yeah. family that yeah. state house and that and all yeah of that. and you know that that scene in the series is based on a trip that I took uh, when I was reporting the book. I went back to Warren, Ohio, uh, where Ailes was born and you know, lived his, his um, life until he went off to college. And I, I visited the house that he used to live in. I knocked on the door. I went into the house. I interviewed the people that lived there. And they recounted um, the time he brought his family to visit the house. And you know, I was really struck by you know, how much um, this uh, revealed about you know, where he came from and who he would become. Um, and I think the other point that that trip represents is that what I find often with, you know, Republican politics is that um, the gap between the idealized and the reality, the sort of fiction, the, the sort of dreamlike idea of America that Republicans talk about and Ailes especially talked about versus the reality of what America is and was. And, um, you know, he describes you know, America is this white picket fence, um, idealized 1950s, you know, leave it to beaver vision. But the house that Ailes came from was this abusive kind of domestic nightmare with an abusive father and a, and a mother who feared that the father would kill her. Uh, and she finally divorced him and packed her bags and moved to California. So, you know, he came from this, this shattered home. And the line that Russell delivers in that scene um, is based on something Ailes had told a friend, which is ba- is that you know his father once had him jump off the bed and made him fall smack on his face and said, you know, son, that's a lesson. Don't trust anyone. And now that story is you know a lot of people have pointed out, and it's true that story is is you know you can Google it. It's on the internet as sort of stories that people talk about um, the abusive situations they came out of. But what I what I took from it is the way that Ailes talked about his his background is almost like he had to, you know, recast this this childhood in in a way that was triumphal, in a way that explained how he became so paranoid and vindictive and ruthless. Um, and that is uh, that's what I think we wanted that scene to capture dramatically. Um, and, you know, the other point I'll say about, you know, going back to someone's roots and we talked about this in the writer's room a lot as well is like. People have choices to make. There are a lot of people who come from, you know, horrible circumstances, overcome, you know, incredible hardship as as children, and they don't become vindictive, paranoid, right wing uh, demagogues. They don't become serial sexual predators. And so, I think what also we wanted this character to show is that people do make choices. Roger Ailes, yes, he had this background, but he did make choices of the way he lived his life. And so um, we didn't want to be able to explain away this um, abhorrent behavior by the by the childhood he came from. Where was your head in terms of thinking? Because I think that's part of a big thing is like, who's going to play him? 
you know, how much is this going to be mimicry? When you have Russell Crowe, he can also get a little bit of that menace of him. And these casting choices, uh, just, you know, we there's another one, John Lithgow, that was done that really kind of, that speaks to a kind of a satirical type of story. You know, whereas a Russell Crowe, in the way he could do it, could have a, a menacing presence. You know, I, I have to imagine that's something regardless of even how you write this story, that's got to be something on your mind of how how this is going to be represented. Yeah, you know, I think in terms of casting, which I should just say up front, I, I wasn't involved in the casting that was, uh, you know, Jason Blum and, and Showtime um, and Tom and Alex and all of that. So um, I was, you know, obviously weighing in and I was thrilled that, you know, that Russell decided to take on this role. But I think for me, just as a writer um, and what I wanted, whoever played Roger to be able to channel was yes the menace but also the charisma the the messianic presence that he had of convincing his troops at Fox to follow him into battle i mean the way every cult leader has that duality of both being charismatic but being incredibly um sadistic as well and i think russell really channeled that there are moments when he's charming he's funny he's witty and then there are moments when he's terrifying. And that's really who Roger Ailes was. I mean, if you interviewed some of Ailes's friends, they would tell you, you know, he was the, the most entertaining um, dinner party companion because he would tell, you know, body off color jokes. But if you told a, a woman that had been sexually abused by him, if you asked her her experience with Ailes, I mean, she would say he's, you know, devil uh, incarnate. And so, you know, I think that extreme, that, that extreme of his um, – personality is something that, you know, only a gifted actor, I think, can can capture. Um, and I think that's what I was hoping for. And I think we I was thrilled that we got is somebody who could show how someone like Ailes was able to operate in the world. I mean, you know, he didn't have his downfall until, you know, he was 76 years old. I mean, that is quite a run for someone who is as monstrous as he was. And so I wanted the audience to understand how Ailes can keep that pattern of behavior going before the downfall came. We're talking about the challenges of adaptation, but you know, one thing that, um, you know, film and television can do is in terms of space and dramatic space. And, you know, a huge part of the Fox news story is, is that inner sanctum and the, the kind of that, that office that he ruled from, I mean, maybe I know about it from your reporting over the years and stuff, but it, it there, you know, whenever one thinks about this world and the source of power one's mind automatically kind of goes to these halls of Fox news and that, you know, before we talk about how that was shown, how much of that I I'm curious is, was in your imagination rather than you're, you know, able to actually visualize it. it, it I imagine a lot of it is kind of reiterated from people telling you about it rather than actually seeing yes, it. Yes. You know, right? I've been, you know, I've been inside Fox news, you know, over the years um, for meetings and actually before I wrote this book, they occasionally had me on the air. So uh, I've been you know in the studios, but I had, yes, I had never been in Ailes's office uh, personally. And so, you know, that whole vibe, that whole kind of claustrophobic, paranoid, uh, atmosphere that the show captured is based on, you know, my dozens of interviews with his you know closest um, associates who had been in there over the years. And, you know, I think what I took away from those interviews was the kind of the way they emotionally described being in that place of always feeling like you're being watched, of looking over your shoulder, you know, the, the, the sense that there are video cameras everywhere. Um, you know, that is um, that is what we strove for. And I was really um, happy that after the show aired, I was getting, you know, emails and texts from Fox News executives who, 
you know, were just shocked at how um, accurate and de- de- detailed, you know, those office scenes really seemed. And what about this character? I I, pron- I don't know how to pronounce her name. Laterza. Um, yeah, uh, Rogers, um, longtime assistant. You know, the 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 postscript, the end credits to the the whole series does kind of get at the fact that she it, it kind of alludes to the fact that she's been a little bit of a mystery and hasn't hasn't done interviews. I I I don't know if you've spoken to her, but you know there is an element there because part you know one of these things is like what you're going to choose. You talk to six hundred people, like what are you going to choose in terms of which characters to put in there? And it's interesting because I, I it gets this idea of adaptation because there's a thing there that goes unspoken that is like this emotional loyalty bond admiration that's there and to a certain degree the camera and us as an audience have to fill in based on our own kind of understanding but i'm just curious because i imagine and i'm guessing maybe you do have very intimate knowledge of of their relationship but it seems like one of these things where you know to choose that character and also figure out what how that's going to be portrayed is kind of is kind of one of the difficult. I imagine one of the di- tricky balances of of something like this. So, you know, two things. One, I think, in terms of just the relationships that we wanted to highlight, uh, you know, there were, in my mind, as a writer, there were kind of two dramatic archetypes uh, for this series. One was, as I mentioned, you know, I I wrote the book almost as a cult story, right? Of the of the birth of a cult leader and this cult that he built, and then the influence that the cult had. You know, the second kind of um, model that you could look at the series on is, you know, really, you know, a gangster film, right? Uh, That Fox News is a mafia, Ailes was the boss, and that within the hierarchy of the mob, there are different players, right? So you had Brian Lewis, who was the enforcer slash capo. You had, you know, Peter Johnson, the the lawyer who, you know, cleaned up uh, after Ailes. And then you had, you know, Judy, you had the kind of the, the competing wives. You had, the, you know, the real life wife, Beth Ailes, and then the office wife, Judy Laterza, and the kind of rivalry between the women for the, the, the affection of the boss. And so, you know, those were kind of the models, dramatic models that I had in my mind when I thought of who these people were. Um, and, you know, the other image that stuck with me when I was writing the book, and I think for the series as well, is that Fox executives would describe Judy Laterza coming into meetings and sitting in the back with a yellow notepad and writing down everything people said and storing those notepads for you know future reference um, so that if anything appeared in the newspapers, you know she could go back and say, well, these are the five people who were in that meeting, so these are the five suspects of the leakers. And just that that spectral presence, she didn't say very much, but she was the most one of the most feared people inside the network. I think that was what we were striving for in that character. And Alexa Palladino, you know, I think brilliantly captured that of just being this presence, um, always there, never quite saying a lot, but you're just always, you, you want to know there's so much more going on there than almost you off the screen than there is on the screen. You know, the, the other part of this that you have to kind of capture is the power, you, you brought up the mob boss thing, the threatened that power of that feeling of 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 quieting everybody of of what it means to step across the line against him i'm guessing that's something that you personally got to feel a little bit in the process of reporting this story without question you know the the sort of physical and psychological fear that i lived under 
uh, in the years I was working on the book, I think was what many people who both worked with Ailes and crossed Ailes experienced. You know, he had me followed by private investigators. You know, I was terrified that my computers and my so- my notes were being hacked. You know, at one point, my wife and I looked um, into getting our apartment swept for um, uh, we looked into getting our apartment swept for bugs. Uh, because, you know, sources were saying, you know, Ailes is going to, you know, break into your apartment and tap all your phones. And, you know, the security consultant we called was going to charge us, you know, $10,000. I didn't have the money for that. So that didn't happen. Um, but, you know, those were the lengths that we went to. You know, at one point, you got a death threat at our uh, at our house. And I called the New York uh, Police Department and filed a report. You know, this was the kind of pressure that we were under as I was trying to finish this this book. And I think that is also partly why Ailes was able to maintain his power for so long is that, you know, people around him just decided it wasn't worth it. Even if they wanted to blow the whistle or stop him, he made the stakes so high, or at least the perceived stakes so high that, um, people just let it go. And, um, and so that is, I think that's what, you know, made him again, such a unique dramatic character is that most people, especially public figures in American life, you know, they're not feared like gangsters. I mean, you know, Mark Zuckerberg runs, you know, Facebook or Jeff Bezos runs, you know, the world's richest man runs Amazon. But, you know, people don't fear these people like, you know, mob bosses. And that's what I think made Ailes so unique. And I have to imagine uh, when we talk about the adaptation capturing that feeling, because I, I instantly think of Gretchen Carlson and 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 making sure to understand the difficulty beyond, you know, I think, I think in the last few years, we all understand the difficulty of a woman speaking up in general under these circumstances, but uh, these are unique circumstances with ales that, that what, you know, to, to emotionally understand what that must've been. Yeah. And, um, I think, you know, Gretchen deserves more credit for, you know, her role in, spurring along the Me Too movement. I mean, her lawsuit against Ailes was, you know, at a time in the culture where women were just starting to come forward. I mean, there was, of course, you know, the Cosby women. And if you go back to the 90s, Anita Hill, but there wasn't this tsunami of allegations against powerful men um, that had happened, you know, subsequently with Weinstein and Bill O'Reilly and all the other players who had been taken down. And so Gretchen's lawsuit really went off like a bomb when she filed it. No one, no one saw it coming, especially her Fox colleagues. Um, and I certainly, you know, I knew she had been unhappy at Fox from what I was hearing, but I had no idea that she was going to go and file this lawsuit. And so um, we wanted Naomi's character to really capture what that was like to jump off the ledge, to kind of take a step that nobody thought she would take. Um, and I think that is, that's ultimately how Gretchen was so heroic in filing this lawsuit because there was no guarantee it was going to work. And in fact, you know, for a while, it looked like it wasn't going to go her way. Um, And so there was a chance we could be, you and I could be talking here um, with a scenario in which she lost, she didn't win. And so um, it was, it was, you know, very brave. And um, I'll always have a lot of respect for what she did. And what about the choice, Gabe, of putting yourself in here, you know, in that sense? Because, I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I'm curious because I imagine that was a decision that kind of went into the whole writer's room in terms of of, of what, you know, because it brings up this idea of someone's reporting the story and someone, you know, the I, I, Ailes is trying to stop this story from yeah. being told, you know? Um, you know, 
two things. You know, when I wrote the book, I explicitly did not put myself into the story at all. I didn't want the story to be about me. The story was, of course, about Roger Ailes. And I did not want to turn this into a, you know, a David and Goliath where it's, you know, this journalist on a crusading path to expose Roger Ailes, because then it becomes about me versus him rather than, you know, he should be the center of his own story. Um, That said, when it came time to adapting the series, I had undeniably become part of the story because, you know, the process of reporting my book had made Ailes so crazy and so paranoid that he started to make erratic and destructive decisions. And so in telling the story of Ailes' rise and falls at, fall at Fox News, we had to include me in some way. That said, you know, what I think the choice we made, which hopefully seemed original and uh, interesting, was that, you know, oftentimes in these stories, the journalist is the hero, that it's the journalist who, you know, the audience is behind and uh, is sort of exposing corruption and wrongdoing. In this case, we only see my character from the Fox point of view. I'm an antagonist in a certain way. And I think while the audience clearly knows that I'm you know, acting with the right intentions, the characters in the series see the journalist as the enemy. And I think that was an interesting choice, um, especially you know, Tom McCarthy coming out of Spotlight. He had you know, really just done this incredible story of you know, ju- journalists as heroes. And so this was a way that wouldn't be just kind of derivative of that. This was a journalist as the antagonist. And so um, once we had made that choice, you know, my role in the series, and thankfully, because I, I did not want to really be, you know, part of a, a big part of the story was just in service of illustrating Ailes's growing paranoia and the threats that he felt uh, were being leveled against him. A huge source of fascination, um, and obviously something that had to be part of the series, is is the the Murdoch Ailes dynamic. Um, you know, just from an adapt- adaptation standpoint, but I also want to talk kind of big picture here. You know. The way that it's portrayed in this uh, in this series is is this idea that you know the Murdochs in particular Rupert you know they tried to put some guardrails up, but at the end of the day, you know you were going to have to get in a knife fight if you were going to stop Roger. Like this was a war, and it was like it was less about it was less about being complicit and more about like they weren't going to tangle with him. That's the portrayal it was in, in, in you know because this is a complex thing and Murdoch is a whole. You know, he's another seven part series in and of himself. So but I'm curious because I want to talk also about the implications of what's happened now after after Ailes has died. But I mean, first off, let's just start there. That portrayal of of that dynamic. Yeah, you know, and this is obviously something people will debate. But, you know, the way I saw Murdoch in the in the Ailes relationship is that, yes, Rupert Murdoch is conservative and is, you know, throughout his life generally backed right-wing political causes and, and politicians. But, you know, at the fundamentally, the more important thing to understand about Rupert Murdoch is that he's a capitalist and he's a businessman. And there have been, you know, pivotal moments throughout his career where he has, you know, backed more liberal candidates because it would advance the interest of his company. Um, and so, you know, whereas Roger Ailes was a committed, true right-wing believer. And so, you know, there were moments 
throughout their relationship at Fox News, where especially during the rise of Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008, when it looked like Murdoch wanted to steer the News Corp empire in a more centrist direction. You know, Murdoch was getting a lot of pressure from his adult children to support Obama. And it, you know, it was very clear Obama was going to win and, and Murdoch wanted to have good relationships in Washington. And so him and Ailes were kind of fighting about you know, whether uh, Ailes could be as aggressively anti-Obama as Fox was at the time. And what happened was you know, they kind of had this confrontation where Ailes threatened to quit if Murdoch didn't uh, endorse John McCain. And Murdoch you know, saw – the golden goose of News Corp flashed before his eyes. You know, Fox News was the most profitable division of his entire media empire. And what did he do? He blinked. And so I think, you know, what we wanted to reflect in the series was that, you know, Murdoch was willing to put profits ahead of any kind of morality um, or responsibility uh, until it was, you know, really too late and he had no choice but to fire Ailes. But the kind of complicity that Murdoch had in looking the other way and letting Ailes be Ailes unchecked is a major factor in what had happened uh, at News Corp that allowed this, you know, the years of abuse to happen. Um, and so, you know, some people will say, oh, maybe we let Murdoch off a little too easily. And, you know, that might be true. But I don't think so because, you know, there were times where he could have stopped Ailes and for purely for financial reasons, um, he backed down. And um, and now, you know, we see the result of that. What's fascinating to me is and I, you know, I, I, I've I've read the book and I, I've kind of studied these. I've been fascinated by this from the, from afar for a while. And I have to admit that the turn that I did not expect was what Fox news is today in 2020 in the sense that, you know, that, you know, this has continued. And what's interesting to me is how much of this is Donald Trump is the number one TV star and that is a cash cow. They can't, they can't stop. Um, you know, is that is because the other thing is we're talking about an older man who I think is not an idiot and also is aware of his legacy. He seems to be very aware of his legacy. And I, I mean, we have to look no further than what we're living in right now to realize that this very well might be his legacy of what's like what's happening literally right now with with the virus. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with you. you know, I, I was wrong. You know, when I when my book came out and I would get asked in interviews, you know, what did I think the future was of Fox News? I would quote what executives had told me at the time was that when Ailes left, Fox News would be like, you know, North Korea after um, the regime falls. It's just total chaos, power vacuum. Um, I thought it would be a house of cards. And and in fact, the opposite happened. Um, and I think what that reveals is that Ailes built this machine that was so successful and had been so well oiled that if you take the you know mad genius out of the equation – the machine is just sort of running on autopilot. But I think what has happened is that, yes, the machine kept running, but more specifically, you know, Ailes's firing and then eventual death coincided with the rise of Trump with his election and then obviously, you know, with everything he's done um, as a demagogue president. And and I've written this in Vanity Fair um, uh, during the, the years, uh, early years of the Trump presidency. He essentially became 
what Roger Ailes was to, to Fox during the Ailes era. I mean, Trump is the creative, philosophical, spiritual um, North Star that the entire network, you know, orbits uh, around. And, you know, there are times when Fo- when Trump is taking policy ideas and talking points from Fox News. But, you know, very often the Fox hosts are putting things on the air to try to please Donald Trump. And he has personal relationships, um, you know, specifically, mo- you know, the, the most specifically with Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and the Fox and Friends crowd. I mean, he has these relationships. He's on the phone to these hosts in the same way Ailes used to be. And so, you know, we now have sort of, instead of Roger Ailes running Fox News, we have, you know, the Oval Office has replaced Ailes' second floor office as the seat of power in media. Is it fair to look, because I mean, I know Lachlan is more of a libertarian. He seems to be, you know, and he's he's hired people like Paul Ryan and stuff. Is, is this another, and he clearly had problems with with Ailes. Is this a, is this a case where, it's still a money thing. It's it's because I mean you just described what Trump is doing, but I mean in terms of putting a check on him, is it is it the same type of thing where it's the alternative? I, I think is, that's that's got to be the uh, that's got to be the equa- the answer because I know from my reporting, you know, Lachlan has been lobbied by Paul Ryan and and other. Uh, Republicans to try to steer Fox away from Trump to build a post-Trump future in conservative media and conservative politics. And, you know, what we've seen, you know, the network's disgraceful coverage of the coronavirus and downplaying it to fit the Trump narrative, you know, is evidence that Lachlan has made no serious moves to clamp down on, you know, the Trumpification of Fox News. Um, and, you know, it is the it is the now the foundation of the smaller media empire the Murdochs have. And the Fox audience is so loyal to Trump at this point. I don't even know if the network could um, break up with Trump without, you know, the audience revolting against uh, Fox. And we saw this, you know, briefly during the 2016 campaign when uh, Megyn Kelly tangled with Trump and Instead of supporting the Fox star, you know, the emails and tweets and texts that all came into Fox News were taking majority were taking Trump's side. And so, you know, I think the Fox audience now has been taken over by Trump. And uh, and I think they're sort of trapped. It's a little bit of a hostage situation where um, even if they wanted to break free from Trump, um, I don't think they, they're able to. You know, the last thing I wanted to just talk to you about a little bit is, you know, one of the things about adaptation is, is like, and 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 in general, the 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 engine of film and TV and what it can do is is emotion in a way that you know your book can put in larger context and and give and give bigger exposition that a film can't do, but it, it's always going to be able to carry that relationship with the characters and what the characters are thinking. And it's been interesting to hear you talk because you were talking in terms of archetype and instantly kind of seeing this story in, in, in some of those conventions. You know, one of the things that's fascinating to me, though, about Ailes is that, and I think it's something that often gets lost, is, yes, there's a partisanship. Yes, there was a sense of of distorting the news and, and what got said and what didn't get said and what started the story. But Ailes, to me, and I'm thinking visually as well as a storyteller, it, it, it was he got that part of it, the emotional part. It, it was it was how it's how the medium can make you feel and how story can make you feel. And in a lot of cases, if you watch Fox News and you turn off the volume, 
it is still to this day kind of the visual paranoid version of of what I imagine his inside of his head looked like of a world on fire. And it, it, in a way, Fox, it, we're talking about filmmaking and stuff. In a way, it's kind of an extension of we think of like an auteur of of, of, of a paranoid emotional storyteller. Without question, you know, the DNA of Fox News um, really you can trace back to Ailes' time uh, in the early 1960s um, as a young producer on the Mike Douglas show and learning, you know, how emotion and authenticity and storytelling and how to relate to the camera are the most powerful tools um, in politics. And he applied those values throughout his career and it all kind of culminated in Fox News and the 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 visual presentation of the network, the colors, the brightness of the sets, the bleached blonde hair of, of the women, the short skirts, um, everything was part of this package to induce in the audience an emotion, usually outrage um, um, uh, against liberals and all the perceived enemies of the right. Um, but, you know, that is, I think, will be among Ailes's chief legacies was, you know, bringing entertainment tour values to propaganda. Um, and, you know, it's not it's not surprising, you know, in the 1960s, he told a friend uh, that one of his um, uh, w- he was really an acolyte of Lenny Riefenstahl and, you know, the the Nazi propaganda films that she had made, um, like Triumph of the Will. And I think, you know, that respect for um, for for art even if it's used for the most nefarious and, and evil purposes, um, I think is something that he applied throughout his career. And, um, and so I think when, when we look way back, you know, when we, when we look back on the Fox era, you know, we'll see him as, you know, as a, as a demagogue, but also as a showman. It seems as if also even like the little arc that you gave Hannity in this seven part series even the idea of casting someone in that role and putting that in there. I don't know how much I mean, I don't, when I say reductive, I don't, please take it as a, I understand you have to reduce this to like six hours or, you know, seven hours, but it, 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 that seems to be an important part of in particular, that arc of like casting and creating a, a personality. Yeah. Without question, you know, in that scene, I think in the pilot where, um, Ailes is casting for the original hosts and he turns the sound off. I mean, that is based on, uh, you know, real meetings that happened where he would uh, watch demo tapes. And the, if he turned the sound off and still thought the person could communicate through the screen, that would get them in, you know, to the next step. Um, and, um, and, you know, Sean Hannity was, you know, really, and he said this, Hannity has said this himself on his own show when he's talked about his start. You know, he was you know, incredibly unpolished and rough and coming out of, you know, uh, regional talk radio. And, you know, Ailes brought, plucked him out of obscurity. And, you know, by making his own stars like, like Hannity and Steve Ducey um, and, and others, you know, he built this cast of characters that was so incredibly loyal to him. I mean, you almost imagine Ailes like the old studio bosses in the, in the whole, hey, whole uh, heyday of Hollywood where, you know, these, these actors were on contracts and they owed everything to the studio chief. And so he controlled them. And, um, and Fox News really was in, in some ways like, 
like MGM or, or these you know, studios uh, in Hollywood's golden age. You know, obviously, you know, the the values were um, incredibly twisted, but in terms of just the way the system operated, Ailes was um, a, like, you know, like a Louis B. Mayer. Last one for me. I, I'm fascinated by this, and it's not just not just with Lattice Room, but in general with with a lot of these historical stories. I'm curious what yours and the writer's approach was to dialogue. It sounds like you've quoted a couple times. It sounds like sometimes you're lifting things from from interviews or things that were reported. But in general, obviously, you, that's not something you always have here, and you do have the need to get to dramatic, you know, to dramatic events. I'm curious about finding that balance and 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 what the approach was, you know, between retort, reporter and dramatist when coming to staging these scenes and and. and yeah, you know, I think it's a process. I think you know, wherever possible, you know, I we would. I would take things that, you know, Ailes had said over the years or he had told people in private. And if it worked dramatically to deploy that in a scene, of course, I would lean into, you know, his actual words. Um, But again, this isn't a documentary. It's a piece of art. It's entertainment. Um, And so, you know, at some level, you have to commit to these characters that we are creating as as writers, as dramatists. And so. I think when writing dialogue, you know, we had to also just rely on what we believe to be emotionally true about the character of Roger Ailes as we had been writing him. Um, and so I think it's, it's a balance. I mean, for me as a, you know, my background is in journalism. I think, you know, one of the things I found so rewarding about screenwriting is that I had lived with Roger Ailes as a character in my head for, you know, five years. And then, but as a journalist, you know, you can only report what you know to be factually true based on documented evidence. You know, being a screenwriter allows you to go into rooms that you can never get into as a journalist. I mean, I, I, I've never been in a room with Roger Ailes and his wife as they tuck themselves into bed. But it was incredibly, you know, thrilling to be able to imagine what those, what those scenes were like or what those scenes were like uh, when Ailes was sitting um, alone in his office with just one other person. And so you have to commit to the character that you've written and just hope that you've done so much of your research and you're writing with authenticity that the audience believes you that this, these are things that a character like Roger Ailes would say. All right. Gabe, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, congratulations. On thank you. Stay healthy and safe. And today's podcast was brought to you by Apple TV Plus and their original series, The Morning Show, which is for your consideration in all eligible Emmy categories, including best drama series.